Greetings fellow captains and welcome back to Rank Amateur. Today we have a two-part episode. First part of it is a naval history section on USS Reeves, which is my one and only listener request so far. And the World of Warships section of this episode is going to be on the Tier 5 non-premium Pan-Asian destroyer Wei. First of all, some of you might be thinking, well, why is this on a Saturday and not a Thursday? Well, because I am a student in a high school and the school year is very busy during the weekdays, so I'm moving my weekly upload dates to Saturday. And I still can't guarantee that I'm going to have uploads every week. Well, actually, I will have uploads every week, but I can't guarantee they're going to come on a Saturday. I will do my very best to keep a consistent upload date and keep giving you the content that you are hopefully enjoying. And the second question you guys might have is, well, why is this a two-part episode? Well, if I just had the World of Warships section on Zhang Wei... Half of my audience, or probably more than half of my audience, would be very disappointed that they did not get their weekly dose of naval history. So I figured uh, this would be the perfect time to use the listener request that I've had in my back pocket for a little while now on a ship that wasn't actually serving in World War II, or even close to World War II for that matter. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, let me introduce to you USS Reeves. So, USS Reeves was a Leahy-class cruiser named after Joseph Mason Reeves, who was an admiral and commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet from 1934 to 1936, and he's often called the father of modern naval aviation because he was uh, an integral part in integrating naval aviation into the U.S. Navy and promoting aircraft carriers. Although he did start out his career in the U.S. Navy as an officer aboard a battleship, which I kind of find interesting. So, USS Reeves was laid down on July 1st, 1960, launched on May 12, 1962, and commissioned into the Navy on May 15, 1964. Now, she had a displacement of 4,650 tons light, 5,670 tons standard, and 8,203 tons full load. So when the ship was fully loaded, that means like all the cargoes on and everything like that, ammunition and everything, she weighed 8,000 tons. What they mean by light and the displacement of 4,000 tons is that's like before they put the weapons and things on, usually like before they launch the ship. And standard displacement is just kind of what she weighed when she was tied up to the jetty and not in use. She had a length of 535 feet, or 163 meters, a beam of 53 feet, or 16 meters, and a draft of 26 feet, or 7.9 meters. So this is a fairly uh, long and narrow ship, which means that it's going to have a reasonably high top speed, but usually isn't going to turn that well. So she had four Foster Wheeler boilers, producing a total of 80,000 shaft horsepower, 
and she had a propulsion of two Atlas Chalmers geared steam turbines, and they powered two shafts, so this thing had two propellers. What I can find interesting is the fact that this propulsion mechanism that they have is not really all that different from what they had in World War II, where most of my ships that I have a podcast on are centered about. So they didn't really have many advancements as far as in cruisers until like later in the 1970s or even the 1980s, which I find very interesting because that really wasn't all too long ago. She was capable of 32.7 knots. She had a range of 8,000 nautical miles at 20 knots and she carried 1,800 tons of fuel. So that's actually a really long range for how fast the ship is going. 8,000 nautical miles at 10 knots. Most of the ships that I have had a podcast on before are only capable of their maximum range at 10 knots, which I find quite interesting as well, which means that these ships are getting more and more efficient as uh, time goes on, which they should because technology is advancing. So they had a crew of 413 that comprised of 32 officers, 381 enlisted. Uh, she had some sensors and processing systems, obviously, because this is a newer ship. or Well, not newer ship, but newer than most of the ships that I do a podcast on. So she was equipped with an AN-SPS-48E 3D air search radar, which gives them the bearing of the aircraft, the range of the aircraft, and the altitude of the aircraft. She also had an AN-SPS-49-2D air search radar, which is just the bearing and the range, so which direction it's heading and how far away it is. She had an AN-SPS-10F surface search radar, which is for giving the position of ships. She had four AN-SPG-55B missile fire control radars, so they direct the missiles that the ship is going to launch. She had a CRP-2900 Pathfinder navigational radar, and she had an AN-SQQ-23 bound-mounted sonar, so that's going to help detect submarines. She also had electronic warfare equipment and decoys. So the what they mean by electronic warfare is just something to kind of trick like guided missiles and torpedoes. The thing that she carried was an SLQ-32V Nixie towed torpedo decoy, and that just kind of makes a bunch of noise and things so that honing torpedoes that use sound to direct themselves will hopefully go for the decoy rather than the actual ship. It's usually pretty successful, but not always. It's kind of a game of chance. She had other uh, less intelligent decoys that were for missiles, and that was just simply a chaff launcher, notably a four of them, and they were Mark 36 SRBOC chaff flares. And these essentially, when a missile is coming towards the ship and it's going to hit the ship unless they do something about it, what they'll do is they'll launch this chaff, and it's just kind of um, something that attracts like radar and things like that, and they'll use it as a decoy in hopes that the missile will hit the chaff, which is basically worthless, and rather than the ship. So it's also kind of a game of chances whether the missile's going to go for the chaff or not, but it is a method of defense that has been used for a long time. It's used both by ships and aircraft as far as missile defense is concerned. 
she also had a lot of armament, which is kind of interesting because there's, it doesn't look very armed, or it has what's called an underarmed appearance, and that just means that it doesn't look like on the surface it has a lot of armament, but if you actually kind of take the time to open your eyes and look, you'll find that there is a lot of weapons on the ship. So she had two Mark 10 Mod 5 missile launchers, one forward and one aft, for RIM-2 Terrier slash RIM-67 standard ER missiles, and she could carry 88 Terrier missiles and two magazines. So those are just kind of anti-ship missiles, pretty basic. She had eight RGM-84A Harpoon missiles in two Mark 141 quad launchers. More missiles. Pretty sure those are also anti-ship missiles. She had eight anti-submarine rockets in a launcher, which was a Mark 16 Mod 7 box launcher. So it's just kind of a launcher that sits on the deck, and it's a lot like a fireworks display, really. It, it works the same, except it's a lot more advanced and very much more expensive and more dangerous. But they'll launch these, and then they'll use their radars to, or actually they'll use the sonar to pinpoint the submarine and target it, and the missile will direct itself towards the submarine, hopefully hitting it and possibly sinking it, or at least damaging it. She had six Mark 46 torpedoes and two Mark 32 12.75-inch triple launchers, and those were amidships, so they were in the center of the ship, sided, which means that there was one on each side, and they were located in the center of the ship. If you actually look closely enough at the side of the ship, you can see them. They're kind of small, but they're uh, very deadly. <laughs> she had two 20mm, 76 caliber, Mark 15 Vulcan, Flanix, six-burled, close-in weapon systems, which is just kind of a point defense cannon. And that means that it's going to only be used when some sort of threat has penetrated the outer defenses of the ship, and it's kind of like a last resort to shoot down missiles and aircraft. And she also had two 40mm saluting guns, and that's just kind of... They're decorative, pretty much. They're really not going to be used that much. And she also had a helicopter landing area on the fantail of the ship. It was only that, just a landing pad, and it didn't carry any aircraft or have really any facilities to support an aircraft. And now, onto the history of the ship. And it's actually kind of interesting for a ship that was produced well after World War II in a relatively uneventful time in the U.S. naval history. And I know that we were fighting the Vietnam War in this time period, but it was relatively uneventful for the Navy. Not much happened. And that's kind of what happened to the Reeves in the 1960s. Not much happened, although she was escorting the USS Oriskany and then the USS Midway in 1965 before heading back to her home port at Long Beach on November 3rd, 1965. And she just kind of hung around there until 1966. On May 26, 1966, she went to Japan and began a two-year non-rotated tour with the 7th Fleet, which means that there's no replacement for her. And she arrived at her new home port of Yokosuka on June 16th and departed on July 7th, anchored at Da Nang. And she began her tour, mostly in the Gulf of Tolkien. 
And then she came back to the United States in August 1968, operated out of Long Beach for the remainder of the year, and just participated in local operations. However, in early 1969, she was ordered to go to Maine for an overhaul and modernization. She arrived at Maine in Bath Ironworks on March 31st, and she was actually placed out of commission because the overhaul was so great on April 10th, and the work finally began. And she was finally recommissioned on August 29th, 1970, so like a year later, or more than a year later. And she spent from September 10th to November 19th making passage through the Panama Canal into the Pacific. And this was rather long for a ship of her time to pass through the past the Panama Canal. And that's because she was retraining along the way, just stopping at various ports and bays, just getting used to all... The, her crew were getting used to all the new weapon systems and things that were on the ship. And on November 19th, she arrived in Pearl Harbor. And they just kind of hung around there doing exercises and training in the local waters of the Hawaiian Islands. In June 1971, however, she steamed westward for another deployment in the Gulf of Tolkien. She then came back to Pearl Harbor in December and basically hung around the Hawaiian Islands until September 1972. And then she was assigned to another Western Pacific deployment and spent most of her time off the coast of Vietnam. She then returned to the Hawaiian Islands on March 17, 1973. She remained in Pearl Harbor doing various exercises and actually spending some time in the dry dock for routine maintenance until 1980 when she was deployed to the Strait of Hormuz to assist U.S. forces in the hostage situation at the embassy in Iran although her usefulness resembled that of an ashtray on a motorbike. The early 1980s were kind of boring for USS Reeves. The only eventful thing was a change in home part from Pearl Harbor to Yokosuka, Japan, on August 14, 1980. She served there as a radar picket, which just means that she was there for her radar and sensor use and just to watch out for enemy fighters. Huh? Star Wars quote there, good. Uh, no, no, oh man. But she was watching out for enemy aircraft, ships, and other means of destroying an aircraft carrier. And she was part of Battlegroup Alpha, which was centered around USS Midway. And she actually gained a nickname during that time, and that was the only cruiser in town. Probably because she was the only cruiser in the immediate proximity of Yokosuka at the time. She then exercised with the Royal Australian Navy in a task force centered around HMAS Melbourne from February 24th to June 5th, 1981. And they then docked at Perth for some R&R. &R. In 1986, USS Reeves' task, along with some other ships, was to conduct surveillance on the Soviet aircraft carrier Minsk off the coast of Valvidostok. And that was also home to the Soviet Pacific Fleet. And during this, 
USS Reeves did a smart aleck thing, and that was blast born in the USA or laying it on the line over the ship's internal comm, or actually internal and external comm system, whenever they were in proximity of those Soviet naval vessels. That's that's really creative, I guess. I don't know if the U.S. Navy would approve of that, but that's just kind of rubbing it in their faces. So could you imagine that, being on a Soviet naval vessel and your commander being like, shh, shh, wait, comrade, I hear something. And just hearing the lyrics of Born in the USA, even though you don't totally understand them, and then coming topside to see that there was a U.S. naval vessel just off, I don't know, your port bow blasting this music. I don't know. I don't know what the Soviet sailors' reactions would be to that. Another notable thing occurred in USS Reeves' career, and that was on November 5th, 1986, when USS Reeves led USS Rents and USS Oldendorf into the harbor of Qingdao, or Tsingtao, whichever pronunciation floats your boat. Uh, pun there as well, and that was in the People's Republic of China for an historic six-day visit into the port, and that was actually the first time that a U.S. Navy vessel had docked in that port since 1949, I believe, yes, 1949, and that was when USS Dixie, which was a repair ship, left the port when the communists were advancing through the country, and this was a monumental success as far as Sino-American relations. And during that time, U.S. Navy sailors were able to tour some of the sites of China, such as the Forbidden City, the Great Wall of China, and the tour of Qing Fu, which was actually the birthplace of Confucius. And they also, or U.S. Navy sailors, also hosted Chinese sailors, and they kind of gave them a briefing of, like, tour of the ship, I guess. They didn't show many of the classified systems or anything like that, but just a general uh, briefing of how the ship worked and what each thing's purpose was. In July 1987, she was tasked with escorting vessels through the Strait of Hormuz, which is kind of a hostile area and has been a hostile area since, well, the discovery of oil. And so her job was just to escort vessels through there to prevent any <clears throat> Iranian vessels from interfering with operations. And then she was involved in Team Spirit exercises in March 1988. On June 26, 1989, USS Reeves and USS Fifi, or Fi yeah, Fifi, were tasked with rescuing 92 Vietnamese refugees in the South China Sea. They pulled these Vietnamese refugees from the water and from their sinking ship and returned them to the United Nations Refugee Organization in Thailand. I don't actually know what they were escaping at the time, maybe just oppression from the North Vietnamese, but it was a notable action nonetheless. And on October 30th, 1989, an F-18 Hornet from the aircraft carrier USS Midway mistakenly dropped a 500-pound general-purpose bomb on the deck of USS Reeves during a training exercise in the Indian Ocean. 
And that created a five-foot hole in the bow and injured five sailors, sparked some small fires, and sent shrapnel back to the fantail of the destroyer. So yes, it covered the whole destroyer, the whole cruiser, excuse me, what am I talking about? This isn't a destroyer, but the whole cruiser was covered in shrapnel. That is um, very, very interesting. How does that happen? How do you drop a 500-pound bomb on a ship that was yours, that was moving, in a training exercise? Aren't you supposed to drop bombs on the stationary target ships, not the active duty? How does that happen with all these modern communications? How is it possible for someone to be that stupid? I don't know. Maybe those people got, maybe that pilot got court-martialed, but that is just, oh, that's amazing. But USS Rios was actually 32 miles south of Diego Garcia at the time of the incident, so not super far away from immediate repairs. And that was kind of the end of the interesting life of USS Reeves. So you might think, well, what happened to it? Well, she was decommissioned on November 12, 1993, and stored at Naval Inactive Ship Maintenance Facility Pearl Harbor. So she was just sitting in reserve at Pearl Harbor until, 19, or until 2001, where she was sunk as a target ship in a joint U.S.-Australian naval exercise, and she currently rests at... 2,541 fathoms down, which for people who don't know what a fathom is, that's about six feet, and that means you're around 15,000 feet down, or 4,647 meters down. And that was the end of USS Reeves. I thank you for listening to this section of the podcast and strongly encourage you to listen to the next section of the podcast right after this message from this episode's sponsor. Welcome back, Captains, to the second part of this two-part episode, or two-ship episode, on Rank Amateur. The second ship we will be going over is the Tier Five Pan-Asian destroyer, Zhang Wei. At least I think that's how you pronounce it. Some sort of Asian name, or actually Chinese name. Now this ship never materialized. It was, or at least Wargaming claims, and I quote, Developed in Britain, with the design of this destroyer flotilla leader was offered to the government of the Republic of China in 1929, Project T.306, but it never materialized. The ship carried five main guns and two triple torpedo launchers. That's what they claim, but it's actually pretty much just a pseudo-vampire-class British destroyer. Like, if you look up HMAS Vampire, yeah, and I know that's an Australian ship, but it used to be a British ship, you can see that it's basically the same. It's, it's pretty much exactly the same. It's just a literal copy of the design, given a different name and flying a Taiwanese flag. And you said, Taiwanese flag, Jaden? I thought it was a Chinese ship. Well, yeah, it's a Republic of China ship, but there's two Chinas in the world. And I'm not going to get very far into this discussion because people from both sides of China are very, very passionate about it. But essentially, the People's Republic of China is what we know as the traditional China today, and they're the communist party that won the Chinese Civil War. The Republic of China, or Taiwan, was originally in control of China before the, I think, 1949, and had to flee China because they're the democratic like party, and they were forced out by the uh, Communist Party, and they reside in ta- Taiwan right now. 
But enough with this uh, fake history. I'm pretty sure it's pretty much fake because I've never I've looked up Project in the records of the British Navy, and it's really come up with nothing. So I guess if you can find something, please email that to me. I'd really love to learn about the design history of this ship. But other than that, without further ado, let's get into the World of Warships gameplay of Jean Wei by starting out with the specifications of the ship. So, you finally arrive at Tier 5 in the Pan-Asian lineup. Now, the Pan-Asian lineup is not one country. It's just a group of ships from different countries in Asia. So, you have Thailand, you have the Republic of China, the People's Republic of China. There's a ship from South Korea. There's a ship from, or actually a few ships from Indonesia. So, yeah, just pretty much everything but Japan. Now, this ship has 10,600 hit points at Tier 5, and that's base. Actually, I'll go in uh, top configuration right now so that's hit points is 12,500 and top which I really do recommend getting that second haul as soon as possible because there's an extra 2,500 hit points it really makes this ship pop and just be spectacular so starting out you have five main battery guns and that's no different between stop stock excuse me not stop stock and top configuration they are 120 millimeter guns, 45 caliber, and Mark 1. They have a reload time of 8 seconds, which really isn't that great. We look at, like, Nicholas, which is the American Tier 5 destroyer, has a 6.5 second reload time in bottom configuration, which makes it quite a bit faster as far as the rate of fire and the damage per minute of the ship. And the guns, they're pretty good, actually. They do hit hard, but we'll get into that in a second. The 180-degree turn time is 18 seconds, which really isn't that bad. It gets its gun around quite quickly, and that's very good when you're kind of duking it out in a close-range knife fight. And you're really going to be on the defensive side with this destroyer. I really don't recommend going in a close-range knife fight with this thing, and I will get into that later. But stock configuration, the firing range is only 9.94 kilometers, which isn't, that isn't actually too bad, because if you look at the Soviet Tier 5, the, or Premium Tier 5, the Ohotnik, that's going to have around that range too. So if you put that in top configuration, you can get an edge on most destroyers with a 10.93 kilometer range, which is about the same as the Tier 5 Nicholas, which is basically this thing's biggest competitor, is the Nicholas. It will outclass most other destroyers, in terms of firepower, except for the Nicholas. So you really got to be careful when dealing with the Tier 5 American Destroyer. Now, the maximum dispersion is only 97 meters in bottom configuration, and in top configuration, it is also the same. The HE shell is capable of doing 1,700 damage in top configuration and stock configuration. The chance of fire on the target is 8%, which is actually fairly good. I do quite like that. Initial HE shell velocity is 814 meters a second, which is, it's respectable. It is still a little lofty, but it is respectable for a 5-inch shell, or actually sort of 5-inch shell, because it is technically only a 4.72-inch shell for people who live in the United States, but it's 120 millimeters, which is pretty standard for Tier 5. The HE shell weight is 22.68 kilograms. The AP shell is capable of doing 2,100 damage, which is fairly respectable. Has a velocity of 814 meters a second and the same weight, so 22.68 kilograms. 
Uh, I mean, you're really not going to use the HE, or I mean the AP that much on the ship, but when you really need it, it is there, but you're really only going to need it against maybe really lightly armored cruisers, such as the British Empire cruisers, or just really close range broadside cruisers, but other than that, you're just going to use your HE to set fires. That's most what you're doing here. Now, the torpedoes are where things get interesting with this ship. It has 533mm torpedoes, and it has six of them. Uh, there's two launchers, each with three torpedo tubes. The reload time is 66 seconds, and that is in stock configuration. In top configuration, reload time is 73 seconds. And you might think, well, why is it slower? Well, because the top configuration torpedoes do a ton more damage. In fact, they do 4,000 more damage, which is a lot. It can make really make the difference. So I'll read it off in stock configuration right now. So... Reload time, 66 seconds, we went over that. Rotation speed is 25 degrees a second, so it means 180 degree turn time. So how long it takes the torpedo tubes to turn 180 degrees is 7.2 seconds, which is pretty standard for most things. The torpedo is Mark 11, which is just kind of the iteration of it. Torpedo speed, 64 knots, so pretty respectable. It's, I believe, one of the first Pan-Asian destroyers that doesn't have landmines or uh, mines for torpedoes. And that's kind of World of Warships slang for just a really, really slow torpedo. Torpedo range is 6.39 kilometers, which is less than your detection range. And I'll get to that in a second. But your detection range by surface is 6.84 kilometers. So you're really not going to be, or actually, you're not going to be stealth torping this thing. Even with the concealment expert on your captain, you will only have like 300 meters of stealth torping ability. Which stealth torping is when you are able to torpedo something that can't actually see you, as the name would imply. Oh, and the torpedoes do 11,733 damage. Onto the top configuration torpedoes. So the top configuration torpedoes are pretty much the same. They have a larger or a longer reload time of 73 seconds. They are 533mm Mark 8 torpedoes, which is interesting because it goes back in marks. Maximum damage is increased to 16,700, which is a huge leap in damage done. That's, that's enough to... I believe it takes out every destroyer at the tier. But here's the thing. These torpedoes don't take out destroyers. Each Pan-Asian ship has what's called deep water torpedoes. And deep water torpedoes are just what they are. They go deeper into the water than every other torpedo in the game. Thus, they go straight underneath the hulls of destroyers, because destroyers don't have the draft. They're, they don't sit in the water deep enough to catch these torpedoes, so they go straight underneath them. However, cruisers, battleships, and aircraft carriers have enough draft, so they go in the water deep enough to catch these torpedoes, and thus they hit below the torpedo protection. And that means they will do way more damage than any other torpedo in the game. And it's kind of nice, because if you have a person who's laying a smoke screen, like a destroyer or something, or yeah, destroyer that's kind of messing around in front of you, normal ships, they would be blocking your torpedo shots, because you don't want to shoot a torpedo straight into a friendly. But with these, as long as they're a destroyer, it will go straight underneath them with no harm done and hit the cruiser or battleship that you're aiming at. This can be really inconvenient for knife fights, because you won't be able to torp other destroyers, 
But if you're in a knife fight with a cruiser, which is a really, really brown alert moment, like, yeah, brown trouser moment, these can be a last-ditch effort to sink anything that you that comes at you. Because most cruisers at this tier have around 30,000 hit points. So sometimes even lower than that. So if you hit even just two of the top configuration torpedoes, you will sink them. Period. You will sink them. Which is interesting. It's very rewarding because it's like some of the European torpedoes don't do that much damage and even a cruiser can take multiple of them and still remain afloat. The torpedo range is identical at 6.39 kilometers, but these torpedoes are to not slower than the stock torpedoes. So they go 62 rather than 64 knots, which is plenty fast at the tier, and it's really not going to make that much of a difference. AA defense in stock configuration is negligible. You're only going to be doing a whopping 11.4 damage per second with a firing range of 2.49 kilometers. And in top configuration, you will only be doing 12.9 damage per second. So yes, negligible. Not going to do much at all. So don't really don't count on it. But another thing is, some people think that you have to turn your anti-aircraft guns to remain hidden. And in most ships, that's true. But since the anti-aircraft gun range of 2.49 kilometers is less than the air detectability range, the range that aircraft are going to see you, of 2.59 kilometers, that means it's not going to matter. Because if your AA guns are firing, you are already detected by the aircraft. May as well shoot a few of them down, maybe, if they're on really low health, and get some uh, experience from it. And I had a game in this ship last night where an aircraft carrier player was so horrendously bad. And I mean, I know it's a mid-tier ship, so I know players are still learning how to play it. But this guy had been a, in a carrier from the Langley to the Ranger. He was playing a Ranger, so he's a tier 6 carrier. You'd think he'd know what he was doing. But no, he missed me with every single salvo. And he was overhead so often that I actually shot down like 10 of his planes in a ship that does 12.9 damage per second which is nothing like seriously a, the anti-aircraft guns on this thing are pretty much they're i mean they're 40 millimeters they're a quad mark 7 but there's only one of them there's only one turret it's in the back of the ship and one time i had that turret destroyed so i had zero anti-aircraft defense for the rest of the match but in this particular match, this player in the aircraft carrier managed to freaking botch his drops so bad that he didn't even manage to hit a single rocket. I mean, he, he spent most of his time trying to hit me with bombs, which is kind of like trying to... I don't even know. It's like trying to shoot a target that's 500 meters away from you with a pistol. It's really never going to happen. I think I've only hit, and this is just for experiment's sake, I've only hit a moving destroyer like once or twice with a bomb. And that was with the Langley. So, ah, oh man, you're not going to hit a bomb on a target as fast and as maneuverable as the destroyer. So I easily dodged his bombs that were even close. But most of them, it was so far away, I didn't even have to dodge it. Like, it almost hit the ship that was like a few kilometers away from me. And he wasn't aiming for them because he began his attack run right as he was over me. And he was clearly aiming at me because I had to dodge some of it. But most of the things wasn't even close, which I just find interesting. Uh, but he didn't even hit me with a rocket plane. He didn't lead me enough, which I guess that's kind of tricky. But I guess my point in saying this is this thing will not take down very many aircraft at all. Do not get 
or do not expect to get many aircraft shot down ribbons. That was the one exception. I think that's the only battle I've ever shot down a plane in. Or, no, actually, I've shot down a plane in two other battles. But, like, one plane, not, like, ten, like I did in that other battle. But that was my best battle in the genre. Alright, so the maneuverability, going back to the subject. Maximum speed is 37 knots in, well, I think, all configurations. I'd have to check. Yes, it's 37 knots in all configurations, so stock and top. So this is a fairly quick destroyer. It will do, with a speed flag, 38.9 knots, excuse me, and with a engine boost active, it will do over 40 knots. I think it... 42 pushing 43 knots, which is... I think that puts it at the fastest destroyer at Tier 5. I'd have to check, but that is the fastest destroyer at Tier 5 to my knowledge. Turning Circle Radius is actually fairly good, because it is a short and stubby ship. The Turning Circle Radius is 550 meters, which is not bad at all. Rudder Shift Time is pretty good at 3.2 seconds, which... It, it, it's, it's good. I mean, it's not like outstanding, but it's definitely going to get the job done. Concealment, I've already said this before, but surface detectability range is 6.84 kilometers. Air detectability range is 2.59 kilometers. That's in top configuration is also identical in bottom configuration. So, pros of this ship. Well, I mean, it doesn't really have any obvious weakness. It's a jack-of-all-trades ship, master of none. I mean, its speed is relatively good, and I did say that it was the fastest destroyer tier 5, and that is not true. The Podvoitsky, the Russian destroyer, is 42 knots unbuffed, which is ridiculous. That's what this destroyer does, buffed and speed boost consumable active, which obviously gives you speed boost, as it would say. But it is a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, which leaves a lot of openness to it. But it's also its biggest problem, because it doesn't have any strong suit. There's nothing that, that's very good about this ship, but there's also nothing that's very bad. It's just like, it's good at everything, but it's just not great. And that can be a struggle in stock configuration. What makes this destroyer interesting is, it, like I said, it doesn't have any strong suit, but it also doesn't have any weakness. So, German destroyer T-22 has like some of the best torpedoes, along with the the European destroyer, I believe that's the Visby, has like some of the best torpedoes and lowest detection, along with the Japanese destroyers Mutsuki and Minakaze. The Russian destroyer is just ridiculously fast. The Podvoisky is at top speed at 42 knots. And the American destroyer is just kind of tough as nails and can dish out a ridiculous amount of gun damage, which is its kind of strong suit is how survivable it is and the best main battery firepower at the tier belongs to the Nicholas. Jeanway has just kind of everything. It's got good guns, but they're not great. It's got good torpedoes, but they're mainly a deterrent from you entering the smoke screen. It's relatively fast, but it's not the fastest. One of the real strengths it has is its rudder shift time, though. It's fast enough to evade incoming artillery, even from a close range like 10 kilometers. This thing will prove to be a very hard destroyer to hit from a distance. And its guns are enough to gun down destroyers from a distance and challenge cruisers, or at least farm cruisers and battleships. This thing doesn't do well with aircraft carriers, however, as most destroyers at this tier don't, so I recommend staying away from them unless they're the only target left in the match. In this case, you should probably just be trying to survive and let the match timer expire. Another huge pro of this ship is, well, its only thing that it has going for it, and that's its smokescreen. 
the smokescreen consumable on destroyers and some cruisers allows you to lay smoke to remain hidden. Consequently, you can't see outside the smokescreen, but it keeps you hidden and allows you to escape. But this is John Way's main weapon. It's secret weapon, in fact. It has an amazing smoke consumable. The smoke consumable has five charges. I think that's what the superintendent skills, so that means you'll have four charges if you just buy the ship. But that's amazing, and it's got a ridiculously low cooldown. Like, if you sit in your smoke screen until it expires, which is not recommended, so if you leave it with, like, ten seconds to go, you'll only have to wait 40 seconds until you can deploy another smoke screen. Which means if you have some friends that also have the Zhenwei, you guys can go in a division and literally keep one quarter of the map, or not quite one quarter, but some parts of the map smoked up permanently throughout the match. So you can stay concealed permanently with a division of Jean Wei's. And that's its main strength. You have to abuse that game mechanic. I don't really like abusing game mechanics, but that's the only thing that makes this ship special. Because it has a poor main battery re reload time, and its torpedoes are really, really short-ranged, and it has deep water torpedoes, meaning it can't really contest other destroyers, and poor anti-air def defense capabilities, that means it's only strength. So you'll find yourself trying to remain undetected, which is really what this ship excels at. Heck, it's what all destroyers excel at, but this one in particular... Its torpedoes should be considered as a tool that mainly is used to repel people or discourage other ships from entering your smokescreen. If you're spotted, these torpedoes will definitely have enough bites to sink any cruiser that shall wander close. But be careful of destroyers charging your smokescreen because you have no defense against them other than your artillery. The ar guns, like I said before, do hit very hard, and that makes them useful against destroyers that cannot see you. It's good at f shooting behind islands, which I recommend doing that while waiting out your smokescreen, and using islands to ambush your prey battleships mainly, and sometimes cruisers, will find it hard to avoid your torpedoes when they're fired at a mere range of around 2 kilometers. And that's another strength of the Pan-Asian torpedoes, is their detectability is fairly low. I do forget what it is, but I think it's less than, I think it's like 0.6 of a kilometer, so as long as your target is not running the hydroacoustic search consumable when they can see your torpedoes from four kilometers away, you will be able to surprise ambush things. And not, if your targets do not know what's sitting inside the smokescreen, decide to point bow towards it, and they're coming at you at a range of like seven kilometers. And I know the torpedoes have a range of six kilometers, but the game mechanic is the torpedoes will not have a chance to exhaust their range as long as the target's heading towards you. Because if a target's heading towards you at 20 knots, it will be at 6 kilometers, by the, which is like the range of your torpedoes, by the time your torpedoes get there, meaning the torpedoes will have time to impact and detonate. And the last game I played in the Way, I had a very, very good game. I ambushed three battleships with my torpedoes, and each dealt them around... Well, one was only on like 15,000 health, so only 15,000 damage for that one. But the other two, I dealt around 30,000 damage to them, which was very good. The guns, mostly for setting fires on this ship. You really have to use that smoke screen consumable, which gives it a lot of utility, too. Because there was one battle where I was playing, and there was a battleship that was holding a flank all by itself. And I simply told him to stand still. I would lay a smoke screen for him, and then 
drop, uh, drop the smoke screen and move out of it so I could spot for him. And we used this to save him so he could get a heal off and repair his ship. And we could continue doing damage with his large weaponry. So, you might be saying, if this ship is such a jack-of-all-trades, does it really matter what upgrades and commander skills you use with it? Well, pretty much no. So, what I have on my ship is main armaments, modification 1. Then I have engine room protection and aiming systems. Aiming systems to reduce dispersion. The engine room protection to... or. The aiming system is reducing the dispersion of the main battery guns. Engine room protection to reduce the possibility of my engine becoming incapacitated because that is one of the strengths of the ship is it's pretty fast. Not the fastest, but it's good enough to get away from things. Main armaments modification 1 is going to reduce the chance of your guns becoming incapacitated and torpedoes and reduce the time it takes to repair them. As for captain skills, that is really up to you. I definitely would recommend priority target just to know when people are targeting you. I definitely would go with last stand. That's just pretty typical for destroyers. I then would go with adrenaline rush so you can speed up that horrible reload of your guns. I mean, it's not a horrible reload, but it's just not great reload your guns. And then after that, it really doesn't matter. As far as the tier 3... I mean, the um, third captain skill upgrades the three-pointers. It really doesn't matter. Just take any one of them that you feel would best suit your game style. And then for the four-point skill, I would definitely, definitely take Concealment Expert just to get that concealment down. And that's pretty universal for all destroyers, but that is very, very useful. Now, for recommended signal flags to fly, um, I, I really only fly four and that's Juliet Charlie that's going to reduce the chance of your magazine detonating and I recommend flying that because it seems to me like I get detonated a lot in this ship and that's when I was experimenting with this ship I would kind of go into a training room and set a bunch of AIs and go right into the center of the fire and see how long it took for me to detonate and it seemed like i would detonate fairly easy compared to other destroyers that i have so definitely run juliet charlie and that's what i run when i play a game in this destroyer i would recommend running the papa papa signal for free xp i recommend for running zulu hotel for commander xp because this seem thing seems to accumulate commander xp really slowly for whatever reason and I recommend running a speed flag, so Sierra Mike. And that's going to add 5% to your ship's maximum speed, which actually is a lot when your speed's as high as this. So my gist of this ship. Use islands. You actually play fairly similar to a U.S. light cruiser. Use those islands. If there's a place in the map that is reasonably close to where you spawn that has a lot of islands, go there and camp out. This thing specializes in using islands. Use that smoke screen as well. That smoke screen is super useful, and don't be afraid to use it. You have a lot of charges, and even if you dump a smoke screen and waste it, it has a very short cooldown. It's very similar to the British smoke screens, which makes sense because this is an ex-British ship, and, but this is just kind of the Pan-Asian smoke screens that you have at lower tiers. Because of the ship's inability to deal with a lot of fire coming into it and its inability to deal a lot of damage very quickly, the smoke screen's used for getting out of situations or just kind of rolling up into gun range of battleships. That's my, that's my main strategy is I find a bunch of battleships 
and then I roll up into gun range, but not detectability range, pop my smoke, and as long as someone else, like another destroyer, is spotting for me, possibly Japanese destroyer, and then I just begin to dish damage, and most of the damage comes from fires, which is why I really don't recommend getting IFHE, because you're going to ruin your fire chance, and ruining your fire chance is ruining your main source of damage for the guns in this ship. So you set a few fires, and as soon as they get within 7 kilometers, and as long as they're, they're um, sailing towards you, so 7, 7.5 kilometers sailing towards you, launch the torpedoes just to deter them from entering your smoke screen, and then continue firing. And 47 seconds later, fire some more torpedoes, see if you get any hits, and that is how you do damage in this ship. Or at least how I do damage in this ship, and how I've seen other people do massive amounts of damage in this ship. Do not go for close-range firefights. Do not take sustained fire from cruisers, and do not try to engage other destroyers. Avoid that at all costs. And that is the road to success in the Tier Five Pan-Asian destroyer Janway. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends about this podcast. I have only a few listeners. I think it's 20 as of the recording of this episode. If you have any thoughts on this episode or would like to recommend another ship to be reviewed and gone over in the naval history section, or if you have a ship that is both in naval history and World of Warships, please recommend it to me on my email. That is rankamateurpodcast at gmail.com. I will answer your email guaranteed. Actually, not guaranteed for an instant answering your email, but I will get to it. And also consider to support my podcast on my anchor page which is anchor.fm slash rank dash amateur you can click the support this podcast button and donate anything from 99 cents on up actually it's not anything it's 99 cents 499 or 999 and i believe that is per month it really helps me cover my production costs and i would thank you for any amount that you can donate I also have some pretty slick merchandise that is available at the link in the description of this podcast. And until next time, Captains.